Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is March 14th, 2011, and my guest is Vincent Reinhardt, resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. Vincent, welcome to Econ Talk. Uh, thanks for having me. You recently published a, a provocative paper in the Journal of Economic Perspectives, which is one of the main publications of the American Economic Association, and the paper was entitled A Year of Living Dangerously, The Management of the Financial Crisis in 2008. Now, the standard narrative of the financial crisis, which you challenge, the standard narrative is – the big mistake that the government made that precipitated the crisis was the failure to rescue Lehman Brothers. But you disagree with that, and you go back to the March 2008 rescue of Bear Stearns, which, by the way, I think we're on the third anniversary to the day as, mm -hmm. uh, as we're taping this. That's right. Uh, why do you think the Bear Stearns decision was so important? Uh, Bear Stearns set an enormous precedent. Lehman was made possible by the decision previously on Bear uh, Bear Stearns had many of the similar problems. Uh, it had been seen to be in trouble for a while, so that you would have thought that the private sector had time to control their risk to bear. It was a firm that had a very illiquid balance sheet on the asset side and very short-term liabilities. It, it was a classic run. The government, that is the Federal Reserve, with the consent of the Treasury, aided Bear Stearns, that built up the expectations that made Lehman possible. Let's go back to the history a little bit, and I'm going to take you back a little farther than this, uh, further than this when, when, when we get a little uh, more detail about the story. But let's go back to June, I think it was, of 2007. Mm -hmm. uh, and my understanding of the events of that month come from William Cohen's book, uh, House of Cards which I think is accurate, hasn't been challenged as far as I know. But the, the, what happened was is that in, in that month, uh, two hedge funds that Bear Stearns had been running um, went um, went broke. Yeah, they had a, the wonderful name of enhanced leverage fund, high-grade structured credit strategies enhanced leverage fund. Uh, and, and I think that's what I, I mean by saying – the market got a hint that Bear was in trouble pretty early uh, in June uh, 07. Uh, it supported two hedge funds that really were holding the bits and pieces of its underwriting. Uh, they were very levered bets on housing. And uh, as those funds ran into trouble, Bear was unwilling or unable to provide enough liquidity support and decided, uh, the funds decided to sell off some assets in an auction at the beginning of August. They held the auction of these very illiquid, uh, complicated mortgage securities, and nobody showed up. Or rather, they had to stop the auction because the prices were, were, were so unattractive. That kind of gave you a signal that uh, those highly levered, complicated securities supported by mortgages uh, may not have the value uh, that was currently thought in the market. 
Uh, the reason I mention William Cohen's account of that is that he details that Jimmy Kane, who was the CEO of Bear Stearns at the time, actually considered not honoring the uh, promises that those funds had made to their uh, investors yeah. uh, under the argument that, well, that's a different part of Bear Stearns. It's true that it has our name on it, but those guys took their chances. They, they paid their money. They took their chances. They were bad bets. They lost, not me or not us. But ultimately, uh, the board, in Cohan's account, uh, convinced Kane that that was really not a wise strategy. Kane would use then the parent company, Bear Stearns Money, which was in the billions of dollars to cover the the uh, losses of those those hedge funds, and that put Bear Stearns itself in a very precarious position. Is that correct? Do I have that, that right? Yeah, that's that's the story, and that is the precursor of much of what went wrong in two thousand and eight. Uh, all the entities that ran ran into uh, financial problems actually satisfied their regulatory requirements in terms of having sufficient capital. The problem was twofold. Number one, some of the assets they they held were inflated relative to their true underlying value, and that difference got worse and worse as, the, as economic and market conditions deteriorated. But the second one is many of the entities had spun off activities into off-balance sheet uh, uh, entities that allowed it to keep a smaller balance sheet. So the basic idea is you don't have to hold as much capital if you can create an off-balance sheet entity where you hive off your assets, some assets and liabilities. And Regulators every- allowed that because it was supposed to be without recourse. They were supposed to be independent, separate firms. Uh, but the bear example you give uh, shows you exactly what went wrong. Uh, they, at, when the crisis came, when you know push comes to shove, the management of the firm decided that there was reputational risk allowing an entity, even if it wasn't legally connected to the mothership, fit to fail. And so what happened is, as the crisis unfolded, all these big Financial entities got bigger and bigger as they brought back their off-balance sheet uh, uh, devices. And that's a sense in which I'm willing to accept there's some effect of the Glass-Steagall repeal on the crisis itself because mainstream banks like Bank of America and Citi, which had these investment arms that were doing these risky things with mortgage-backed securities, they could argue, well, that's a different part, but it really – it, it didn't really turn out to be the true. Uh, that's right. And, and and then I would say that would be an accounting, legal, and regulatory failure. Yeah. The regulators didn't count the assets and liabilities of those off-balance sheet entities when uh, determining the overall risk-taking of the, the mother entity. That was a mistake. Uh, when they approved it to begin with, it was a mistake. When the auditors, when the lawyers signed off and said, this is a vehicle without recourse, um, that didn't turn out to be the right a, determination. Yeah, it was a bit of a fiction. Uh, yeah, of course, I, I, it, when it failed, let me just point out, uh, in September of you know uh, 2008, Lehman, according to some reports, had 2,000 separate entities under the same umbrella. 
And by entities, you don't mean assets. You mean balance sheet creations that had assets under them. Yep. Wow. Um, let's go back though to 2007. So it's it's the summer of 2007, and there's a tremor that goes through the marketplace because these assets, uh, very respectable name, Bear Stearns, and the assets that they held, these mortgage-backed securities, didn't seem to be worth very much. And, of course, there were lots of firms doing the exact same thing. So they all got a bit of a wake-up call. Uh, that wake-up call became an alarm bell in March of 08 when Bear Stearns realized that they were going to be unable to borrow enough money on Monday morning of that weekend in March to honor its commitments from uh, to its creditors. Mm -hmm. And so describe what the Fed did creatively over that weekend – uh, for folks who have, have forgotten. And we've talked about it a little bit in this program, but not everybody hears every sh show. It's hard to believe. But just in case they missed uh, our previous programs on this, what did um, what did the Fed do? All right, so the first thing to remember is that Bear Stearns is, was an investment bank. Uh, it provided some uh, uh, services to the Federal Reserve Bank in New York. It was a primary dealer. Uh, but it was not an entity... Uh, regulated by the Federal Reserve. It was not an ent entity that the Federal Reserve could lend to legally through its standard discount window. So in the end, the Fed facilitated the acquisition of Bear Stearns by J.P. Morgan Chase by taking off $30 billion worth of problematic assets. So it did the economic equivalent of acquiring $30 billion of uh, assets from Bear Stearns' portfolio, giving J.P. Morgan Chase $29 billion in return. And the, go ahead. That was enough of a sweetener to get uh, J.P. Morgan Chase to, to, to agree to acquire the whole firm. And the argument at the time was that they didn't have time to do the deal. They only had a weekend. They, there was, it would be a disaster – if markets open on Monday and Bear Stearns uh, went bankrupt. So they didn't have time to evaluate the real value of those assets, J.P. Morgan said. So the Fed said, okay, we understand. We don't have time, so we'll make sure that you bear no loss. As you said, they had to bear the first billion. First billion, yeah. But everything after that uh, was going to be absorbed by the Federal Reserve. Right. Um, is that a legitimate argument? So, They're so complicated, it was sure. said. They couldn't really look into them. Yeah. So if you, if you look at Hank Paulson's uh, memoirs, you'll find that Which a I've phrase avoided. that is repeated so the ahead. most <laughs> is called "before Asian markets open." Yeah. Uh, that and it, and Bear was the first, but it happened again and again. Uh, financial authorities believed that if they didn't resolve. Uh, uh, firm specific uncertainty by the time Asian markets opened on Sunday night that it would ha it would produce a dramatic uh, sell-off of U.S. assets generally as, as basically foreign investors, importantly including foreign official investors, withdrew from the dollar. Uh, there's a number of, of problems with the story, uh, including... Uh, you know, the basic premise is that the, the Fed was take only providing liquidity support. 
the assertion was there was value in those $30 billion worth of assets. Indeed, it was probably over-collateralizing lending, lending of $30 billion. Uh, it was just a matter of sorting through those individual assets to figure out the, the, the exact amount of, of, of value. So in classic central bank fashion, the, the Federal Reserve would be lending into a crisis when the market was temporarily illiquid to a firm that was really solvent. In this case, the portfolio really was worth at least $30 billion. Uh, now, there are a couple things that are not classic about what the Fed do- did. Uh, namely, uh, it extended the perimeter of its safety net. Bear Stearns was a mid-sized investment bank. The Fed hadn't lent to uh, outside the, the, the set of commercial bank banks uh, uh, in volume for more than uh, uh, 70 years. Uh, and it sent a signal about uh, who, would, who would be willing to support. Bear Stearns was a primary dealer. And, and so the Fed, that same day, uh, threw its protections around all primary dealers, even though they weren't commercial banks either. The Fed also um, structured the, lo- the loan, uh, or rather structured the transaction to look like a loan, but it really had the economic equivalent of, of purchasing those assets. In a, in a great irony, the Fed, in order to do that, had to create an off-balance sheet entity. Hmm. Uh, that, that entity was called Maiden Lane. And, and to me, that is the, one of the best examples that you know uh, lawyers have a sense of irony because Maiden Lane is the back door to the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Mm, that's lovely. <clears throat> So they said at the time that they didn't have a choice, uh, and they gave a number of justifications. One you've mentioned already, which was Asian markets would panic, and that might uh, be bad for the dollar, et cetera. They had other stories too, right? Uh, oh, you, there were multiple, sometimes conflicting stories, but uh, you, all, you always uh, have plenty of rationales for what you want to do. Um, but I think I think more than anything, it was uh, it was also a concern that if forced to liquid uh, liquidate the firm Bear Stearns, uh, there would have to be large sales of these uh, problematic mortgage-related securities that would drive down the prices of those securities and impair the balance sheets of uh, entities similar to Bear. Uh, second, that. And you've sort of mentioned it already. Uh, Bear Stearns was not alone. There were other firms that had balance sheets uh, like Bear Stearns, and that um, investors and market participants generally would extrapolate from the Bear experience and, with, and, and withdraw from from those firms. That would be a, a source of contagion. And then third, Bear Stearns was a direct counterparty to many different financial institutions if Bayer was forced into bankruptcy and there were losses on Bayer's uh, uh, portfolio, then those losses would be shared throughout the financial community uh, and, and, and potentially the, 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 the machinery of finance would freeze up. And wasn't there a related issue that there would be delays in settling that the bankruptcy would get tied up in the courts, it would take a while, all these other firms that were expecting sure. payments wouldn't be able to do anything? Uh, 
What do you think of that argument? I think that's the best argument. Um, I'm not convinced of it, but I think it's the best argument. Sure. So, uh, in retrospect... They, just, excuse me, to, to clarify, they held, what, maybe thousands of positions right. that on Monday morning they were going to owe money to people who then wouldn't get their money. They, in turn, were expecting that money. They right. wouldn't be able to pay their folks. What's, what's the legitimacy of that argument? Right. So sometimes uh, that's referred to as the fur, uh, flurry of faxes that would go out throughout Wall Street, um, uh, explaining that uh, you'd not get prompt repayment. And that, in turn, would trigger all sorts of cross-default clauses and, and uh, uh, significantly impair markets. All system There's would freeze up. Hmm? All system, the whole system would, would freeze, freeze up. up. Yeah. And, and then I'm not sure what the, the next part of it is. Uh, the banking system wouldn't work. Uh, I'm not, you know, what does that mean really when it says the whole system would freeze up? I don't know what that literally means for life uh, on the street in a human setting. Uh, well, we heard it repeatedly in volume over the course of the year till the end by, you know, in, in October, uh, reportedly one October of 08, trying to convince Congress to do the, the, the TARP. They said that uh, banks, banks' ATM machines would run out of cash. Um, so what does True. it mean to freeze up? What yeah. it me- means is that every uh, the normal market participants withdraw from market activity because they don't trust their potential counterparty. And therefore, markets don't clear, prices collapse, um, and that uh, generally in an environment of... of, of very heightened attitudes toward risk, everybody hunkers down at the same time, and it becomes a classic fallacy of composition, that each firm's individual effort to make its balance sheet uh, safe, to preserve its very limited cash, uh, uh, causes it to withdraw from market activity and then impairs the overall functioning of markets. Ultimately, then, that has a consequence for economic activity because a lot of uh, uh, the production, uh, cha- production and sales chain involves things like trade credit. And if banks are unwilling to make uh, trade credit available, then activity just doesn't get done. So that sounds pretty scary. That, that sounds scary. scary. So among other things, uh, it, it, it's a, a wonderful you know, uh, example of a false dichotomy in which you present the listener with two alternatives. (laughs) Either the Federal Reserve wisely steps in, sees that markets have prices, uh, are trading at impaired prices, uh, provides liquidity, and... Averts a return to the savagery of the pre-civilized world. Or we're all dealing with, with, you know, we're going back to using uh, cockle shells and trading cigarettes and, you know, in in street corners. Um, And so we're given this either or. And the the beauty of, of the false dichotomy argument is it directs attention away from asking the obvious questions. What were the middle things? Yeah, what are the choices? For instance... Was it possible to provide, you know, as distasteful as it might seem at the, at the time, provide direct sweeteners to J.P. Morgan Chase for it to acquire Bear Stearns without setting the precedent of lending to a non-bank institution? Because once it lent to Bear, it then, you know, the Fed then widened the entire safety net to all primary dealers, 
and set this precedent of government intervention. So were there other things that J.P. Morgan could could have convinced J.P. Morgan Chase um, to buy Bear Stearns, including regulatory suasion? I mean, yeah. uh, were there other potential buyers of Bear Stearns? That was the unbelievable part of it. They gave them a very good deal. They were a little embarrassed by it, right. so they had to so, correct it at the last minute. But yeah, so yeah, so, you know, I mean, the, the you know. Basically, the United States government played poker with Jamie Dimon. Yeah, lost and went home without its pants. Yeah, well, they uh, played. That, it wasn't really the government. It was you. You and I were playing poker with sure. with Jamie Dimon. And, no, no, and we we, we chose a representative to 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 and staked that person uh, in, in this poker game, and we kind of regret it after the fact. Um. Indeed, as you said, the deal was so one-sided that uh, you know a week later, J.P. Morgan upped the the the, the uh, from two to ten dollars yeah. the equity uh, uh, the, the price that we're paying for Bear's equity. But the part that that you emphasize and that I've emphasized in writing about this that I think is so important. Yes, there was a I think an an, an indefensible expansion of Fed authority uh, from a group. Of, of people who are not elected, uh, whose accountability is very mixed. And by the way, we haven't talked about it. I've never seen it. What's the value of those $30 billion right now? Do, has anybody looked at what happened to those? We were told at the time we could be even make money on it. Right. So, <laughs> so by love. the way, uh, we are the proud part owners of a shopping center in Oklahoma City. Uh-huh. Great. Uh, and that is because one of the collateral mor- collateralized mortgage obligations on on the maiden lane portfolio uh-huh. uh, went into default, and we got the property that was supporting right. it, namely right. a shopping center in 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 uh, in, in uh, uh, Oklahoma. There's some some hotels in Boston. I mean, it's all in Colorado Springs. Uh, the, the Fed marks to market once a quarter its 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 main lane portfolio. There have been losses. We've eaten through the billion dollars of protection. So we don't. But you don't know how offhand how much we've lost. Yeah, it's on the H four uh, the H four one statistical release of the Fed. Because that would be a good thing uh, to to um, keep track of that. It would. So at any rate, the government, the Fed went and, and expanded its its um, its authority, but. It, so we can complain about that, and, and both of us have. But here's the part that's that's so strange. They made sure that all the people that Bear Stearns owed money to who were unsecured creditors – these are people who held bonds, who had held other uh, loans that had been made to Bear Stearns. They got all their money back dollar for – 100 cents on the dollar because J.P. Morgan Chase took all those over and honored them, Right, right. Was there a way to structure that deal so that the people who would effectively finance the leverage that allowed Bear Stearns to make such bad bets could have paid a price for it? That's right. the part that's, I think, the key. So what's the, do, you know, do you have an answer to that? So uh, I think the answer is it went unexplored. Were there alternatives, things in the middle of the false dichotomy uh, that would have involved uh, – Going to a private sector entity, uh, having it lift out its balance, you know, the, those those troubled assets, but among other things, uh, allow it not to pay a uh, hundred cents on the dollar. Uh, indeed, 
Another time the, 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 the federal government, or we elected to play poker with, with Jamie Dimon, was in the, the, the FDIC's resolution of Wachovia, which, um, by the way, uh, rather Wamu, uh, Washington Mutual, uh, which, by the way, did involve uh, unsecured creditors taking haircuts. Yeah, and who, who made that call? So that was the FDIC. Which is kind of their thing, uh, although in the past they haven't been so good at haircuts. They've been right. really good at it. Uh, I wonder why that happened. Well, I think the main thing is the FDIC's primary responsibility is to protect the insurance fund. So when it goes into a resolution, it really has to think, as instructed by Congress, on, on the least cost resolution. Interesting. And that it's it's actually difficult legally for the FDIC to get an exception to, to the least cost resolution. Um, now you... And so there were haircuts, and, you know, and it was a perfect that the weekend of the WAMU uh, 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 resolution is quite instructive because there were two resolutions that weekend. There was Washington Mutual, and there was Wachovia. Washington Mutual uh, was run through the FDIC, and and there were haircuts. And haircuts, Wachov- haircuts means people didn't get everything right. they were promised. They got a fraction of it. Exactly. And then Wachovia was uh, facilitated by the Federal Reserve, and unsecured creditors got repaid. So you were at the Fed for a couple decades, right? Right. So speculate if you can, and if you would prefer not to, you can def- you can demur. But um, what do you think it was like that weekend in March? Um, so I have a slightly more sinister, not quite as sinister as some, but I have a slightly more sinister vision of the Fed. You know, the Fed's claim they didn't have any choices. We already discussed that they could have explored some choices, but they'd say, well, we didn't really have time. We had to, before Asia markets open, blah, blah, blah. But what do you think was really going on in the corridors there? How many times was Ben Bernanke's phone ringing? Who was calling? How much um, – Political pressure, and I don't mean the president calling and saying, hey, I have a lot of friends at J.P. Morgan. You better take right. care of them. But it's a small world, this world. Hank Paulson's an intimate of that world. Um, ben Bernanke was not, but he became one and has become one. So it's a small circle of folks making these calls. And, of course, J.P. Morgan's going to tell the chair of the Fed and the secretary of the Treasury that if – if gosh, if 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 we don't get this resolved by Sunday night, it's going to be an apocalypse. Uh, and so, what do you think happened? How do you right. think that played well, out? Yeah. So, I mean, before I answer that question, let me just go back to a good example: is the WAMU and the Wachovia resolutions. Um, part of uh, if you're in the private sector uh, is knowing who to call in the government. Wachovia called. The right entity, Wamu called the wrong one. Yeah. Uh, um, and I think that does reflect importantly on on the charge financial authorities view themselves as having. FDIC's charge is is run an insurance entity and protect the the insurance fund. Federal Reserve. Uh, is an entity that has an overarching mandate for financial stability. The Treasury also has that mandate and also, from the Secretary's perspective, has that that unique um, responsibility of making sure it can always fund a very large deficit. Yeah. Uh, That is, make sure when Asian markets open, 
there are there are ready buyers. Yeah, that, so that's... what what basically happens and and I, uh, is is. Uh, and, and I was not at the Fed at the time of, of Bear Stearns or Lehman. I was at the Fed at the time of the facilitated resolution of long-term capital management back in September of 1998. And I think the, the, the three things that uh, highlight both these, these crises, and you know, at the outset, you have to understand if you're not in the room, you don't under, know what's going on, there, there are all sorts of pressures all sorts of time constraints, all sorts of uh, limited information. And, and um, in some sense, this sort of second guessing is, is unfair. But Agreed. you asked me to be unfair, and uh, I will yeah, be. I agree. Okay. Um, so, so, so the first thing uh, from the Federal Reserve's uh, 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 standpoint is a delegation of authority that the initial point of contact isn't Usually, the chairman of the Federal Reserve or somebody working in Washington, it's the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Yeah. Uh, and so, the person on the ground tends to be someone working at a reserve bank. And in 1998, that was uh, William McDonough, correct? Uh, so, actually, Bill McDonough was was, was at, at a BIS meeting in uh, in Switzerland. Switzerland, I'm pretty sure, and, and Peter Fisher, the uh, executive vice president of the New York Fed, was the initial point of contact. McDonough came back. And then in 2008, I think it was a, someone named... Um, yeah, you might you might recognize him. I wonder what happened to him since. Tim, Timothy F. Geithner. Oh, yeah. No, right. He decided yeah. it was crucial, I guess. Right. He must have spent some time with those folks. Yeah. Um, so, so, so the first thing is, is there's a core and periphery issue that... The point of contact is somebody working at a reserve bank who probably views um, the financial institution they're dealing with as a client as well as somebody uh, as, as as well as a regulatory responsibility. And how do you think – this is the part I'm fascinated by. What do you think the social interaction between those folks is? So I think I think the that's that's where I got to the client versus yeah, regulated you know regulated entity that uh, you know up, remember up to 1980 one of the Federal Reserve's biggest problems was that state its its customer base was shrinking because banks were not electing to to remain state membered banks and therefore regulated by the Federal Reserve hmm. and so there's a there's a there's a culture in at reserve banks, in which you know uh, regulated entities are as much clients as as regulated entities, also remember that um, in these reserve banks, uh, they're they're really uh, they have a board of directors, and that board of directors can include yeah. people like Jamie Dimon yeah. or Dick Fold, the CEO of of Lehman Brothers. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, when when reserve bank staff are dealing at a crisis, uh, they're dealing with people they know. Yeah, not not the best situation. Yeah, uh, I think the, the 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 second thing is uh, incrementalism always sounds good. That is, let's preserve. We we know what we know. Let's preserve that. How can we make? Small changes or even medium-sized changes, if we can at least preserve what we know. Yeah, 
And the problem is there are some cases in which you can't get from here to there by making small steps. Right. Um, I think a good example of the in- incremental uh, 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 argument is, is, is namely Dodd-Frank in the uh, legislation in which it's reform legislation that is painfully obviously designed to keep every box on the org chart unchanged. You may have to add new layers, add new new boxes, add new responsibilities, but you're working from what you know and moving in my my view the wrong direction. So 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 a second thing is 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 the the general view that small steps are bit better or better. And then the third thing is is just information uh asymmetries yeah. associated with multiple regulators. Right. Uh nobody from the Fed really understood Bear Stearns. And indeed, um, I would assume they've had had to make, and, and it, it comes out in, 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 the, in the tell-all books, uh, phone calls to the SEC, who is the lead regulator. Trying to get information at, right. over uh, the and, weekend about what their balance right. sheet really looks like. And the, and the answer is, in retrospect, the SEC was not, uh, you know, um, fully informed about the balance sheet of, of Bear Stearns and the, and the risks associated with it. Okay, so let's let's move on to Lehman. Um, one thing you don't talk about is that the credit default swaps on Lehman uh, spiked very dramatically leading up to March, uh, the middle of March. Right. And as soon as uh, Bear Stearns was rescued, and again, it's very important, Bear Stearns wasn't bailed out, uh, and I just misspoke. They weren't rescued. They were married off in a way that their creditors were rescued, which right, is what exactly. was so important. The unsec- unsecured creditors were rescued. And they are the people who care the most about the downside risk. So right. basically, the Fed sent a signal to the rest of the world that unsecured creditors don't have to be as careful as they might otherwise be. Right. right. So, so, that, so, yeah, so you can complain about about interventions, whether it's LTCM, Bear Stearns, the lack at Lehman and the, and, and the decision at AIG for a couple reasons. One is just pure execution uh, uh, problems. Was the firm really uh, insolvent instead of illiquid? Uh, did they consider alternative uh, possibilities? You know, who who knew what? Who was making the decisions? Did they have a sufficient understanding of of the balance sheet and the and, and the consequences? The second one is a problem with those sorts of interventions you uh, you touched at on are the incentive effects. Uh, Unsecured creditors are the one entities that are supposed to be providing discipline that, on the risk-taking of these large, complex financial institutions. If you tell uh, all potential counterparties that they'll be paid off $0.100 cents on the dollar, you're going to reward them doubly. They're, they will get a, a risk premium in the market for lending to these firms, and if the uh, and in the bad state of nature, in the bad event, uh, they'll get paid off by the government or paid off in a facilitated resolution. And so you you dilute the effects of market discipline. So those incentive effects are, are, are pretty serious. Heads, heads I win, tails you lose yeah. over and over again. Uh, I want to – now let's go to the what happened at Lehman. And we're, you do this a little bit in the paper. I want to get you to expand yeah. on it if we can. We were going to look at what actually happened, and then we could look at what might have, what would have happened, or speculate on what might have happened had the Fed acted differently. But let's look at first what did happen. What did happen is that 
as I started to, to mention, that the credit default swaps, and those are the insurance the cost of buying insurance, essentially, on Lehman Brothers. The price of that went very high, and then once Bear got bailed out, it started to went back to what it was before, uh, which was much lower. Because uh, can people, I just interrupt you yeah, there for please. a wonderful exa- example of incentive effects, and, and what you're talking about is the. So immediately after facilitating the rescue, you know, the, the resolution of Bear Stearns, lending to a to a to a, a, a non bank entity, the Federal Reserve extended its access to yeah. credit to all primary dealers. So what does that have, mean? What what is a primary dealer described that? Well, give me some so, examples. So a primary Who are they? dealer is supposed to be uh, uh, a sophisticated participant in the fixed income markets who has a business relationship with the Federal Reserve Bank of New York in conducting open market operations and in um, the auctions of U.S. Treasury securities. So, so who would they you, be? Who are some of them? Uh, so they were Bear Stearns and Lehman, but it would include uh, Goldman Sachs and you know J.P. Morgan Chase, Morgan Stanley, a lot, a lot, a lot of the very biggest names. Okay, it's not Bank of America. And Bank of America. And Merrill Lynch. Merrill, yeah, Merrill Lynch. So who isn't it? So so <laughs> there, there's some. Uh, so at the time there were, there were twenty. Uh, okay. uh, primary dealers, they're, they're the biggest, the most sophisticated ones. Like a large regional commercial bank wouldn't be a primary okay. dealer. It's like somebody like BB&T or yeah. whatever. Exactly. So, so what? So Bear Stearns, middle-sized investment bank, also a primary dealer of the Federal Reserve Bank in New York, uh, gets lent to to uh, protect the unsecured creditors. The Federal Reserve then opens up its discount window to the remaining primary dealers. Which allows these primary dealers to borrow at? Subsidized rates, rates below that they, so uh, rates below they would be able to borrow in the market at a time of crisis, hence giving them, those entities, a subsidy. And what happened? Tell, tell us the Lehman Brothers story. So, I've read so it the, the paper. week after the, uh, the Federal Reserve does this, uh, and, and then you have to ask, where do, what's the logic of doing this? So the logic from the Federal Reserve's vantage point is you're protecting these entities to give them time to clean up their balance sheets. Right. That they can learn from the experience of Bear Stearns so that the system becomes more secure and, and, less, and less vulnerable. Now, what did Lehman actually learn from the experience of Bear Stearns? The week after... The Federal Reserve uh, sets this new precedent of extending protections of, of the of the discount window to all primary dealers. Lehman took together the bits and pieces of its underwriting that remained on its balance sheet, all these really complicated uh, uh, tranches of mortgage-backed securities and collateralized mortgage obligations and all sorts of uh, 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 instruments, and 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 rolled them together, and issued a new security. And that security had really one main economic purpose, which is it was eligible as collateral for for borrowing from the Federal Reserve. So rather than begin the process of cleaning up its balance sheet, they embedded risks even deeper uh, in its balance sheet with this new uh, structured security 
that really had no other customer than Lehman because it can serve as collateral in the discount window. And so they were active at that window. Yeah. And now the beauty of that, the second example that you know that, 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 that lawyers have a sense of irony is Lehman called that structured note Freedom Notes. Ah, uh, that's good. I've never heard that. That's good. And, and, and at that point, I always, I, 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 I always um, note uh, that it really made true the Chris Christopherson song Janis Joplin made famous uh, with the line, freedom is just uh, another word for nothing left to lose. Yeah, boy. That's unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, the, the other part of it, and I, I, there's two pieces to this that I – have suspicions about, but I can't verify. I don't understand it well enough. Maybe you can help me. Uh, when Lehman did uh, fall apart in September of 2008, was it October? September? September. September. Uh, one of the reasons that it was uh, seen as a catastrophe was that some of its creditors, at least one, was a money market fund. Right which was Reserve Primary, Reserve, which, yeah. which had been the first money market fund. And one of the reasons that interventionists uh, criticize the Lehman Brothers' decision to let them go is that because the Lehman bankruptcy meant that Reserve Primary couldn't collect all the money it expected, they, quote, broke the buck, which means that there's the value of the asset they had been offering was not worth a dollar anymore. It was some fraction of that because now they wouldn't get all the money they expected back from the Lehman loan they had made. And as a result, there was a fear that money market funds were at risk, which was the equivalent of not being able to get your money at the ATM, and people went nuts. And and so the at that I think that right. that day the the Fed decided to what, guarantee all money market funds? They did so something there, incredible. So, in fact, it was a belt and suspenders approach uh, uh, in, in, in around those days. The Fed created a facility to guarantee, essentially support the, the value of the assets money funds hold. The FDIC uh, um, uh, widened the safety net to include... Uh, the, the essentially the liabilities of money funds. So the government supported the asset values and guaranteed lia- liabilities. Which, of course, although there had never been a guarantee of money market funds, everyone just assumed that since, by right. definition, they were only in safe stuff, they would never go down in value. Right. You'd always get your principal plus a little modest amount of interest. But it raised the question, what the heck was Reserve Primary doing investing in Lehman paper, and the answer I assume was, well, it turned out okay for the people who invested in Bear Stearns right. paper. So, right. and they paid, and it paid well. As you point, you got, you got, it, you're going to win twice. You're right. going to offer a better rate of return than your competitors. And in worst case scenario, if, if Lehman Brothers goes bust, you'll get, we'll get it back. Right. So, in fact, in the event the government ratified the presumption that, that investors made. Uh, by the way, in between Bear Stearns and Lehman were, was 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 legislation to uh, facilitate to, to be able to resolve the two GS mortgage related GSEs, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. And uh, a hallmark of those resolutions was none other than making sure that all creditors were paid 100 cents for the dollar to the dollar by the U.S. government, even though every single underwriting document <laughs> <No>. <laughs> uh, that Fannie and Freddie ever had said, 
This is not a U.S. At the top, government. this is not an entity of the U.S. government. These are not guaranteed by the U.S. government. They did not draw in the semicolon and write parentheses, which in email means, you know, winking, just kidding. Sure, They actually sure. just stated it. In, I think it was in capital letters. Love that. Um, so the other thing that I've noticed that, again, I haven't seen anybody discuss. I don't know how important or true it is. But when I looked at Lehman's bankruptcy filing – its largest creditors in that filing, and I don't know exactly what that means, were overwhelmingly Japanese and Asian banks. Yeah. Um, I know that Bear Stearns creditors, I don't know exactly who they were, but I know that J.P. Morgan uh, was was a big creditor, had expectations of payback from Bear Stearns, uh, which, of course, the government made sure that, that some of that was not going to have to be worried about. But what do you think of this political economy argument that says that – the reason that the creditors of Bear Stearns were rescued is that they were politically very important, but the creditors of Lehman Brothers were not. And this whole argument about uh, too big to fail and stability and we had to do it as just a smokescreen. So Lehman was treated differently than Bear Stearns. Uh, even though when you think about the ar- arguments, uh, they seem to have a very similar uh, experience, you know, um, similar balance sheet risks, counterparties did, did matter. Um, I, you know, one, one, one's tempted to believe that personalities matter as well. Yeah. That is the history of, of, of the Secretary of the Treasury at the time, Hank Paulson with Lehman, may have influenced. Yeah, I, uh, I wondered about that. The, the, there was a, a frantic attempt at the end uh, to find a suitor for Lehman akin to J.P. Morgan right. and Chase. Uh, the likely candidate for some reason was Barclays Bank. Mm-hmm. Uh, they asked, not unrealistically, for the government to do the same thing for them that they that the right. government had done for J.P. Morgan Chase. Right. The government said no. <laughs> Lehman collapsed, and then Barclays bought up a bunch of Lehman that, that they were going to buy anyway without this. Yeah. It's an unbelievable so, so, story. So among other things, you know, again, go, going back to the argument of the false dichotomy, what was in between? Um, it just has to say something about crisis management. There was six months between Bear Stearns and Lehman. Um, but, you know, you read the, the tell-all books, and, and there's this last-minute frantic rush to find a suitable, you know, a, a, an appropriate suitor. What, what were we doing between? It's not in the tell-all, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I guess it's tell some or tell yeah. most or tell a little bit. Or yeah. you know. um, So, I, I, you know, I think when you look at Bear, you look at the, the GSEs, you look, you look at Lehman and then AIG, um, these are informing uh, the – you know the the current st- the structure that the government now wants in terms of a financial stability oversight, enhanced resolution powers, um, uh, in in order to wind wind up uh, lar- you know large com- commercial uh, large complex financial institutions. I look back at two thousand and eight, and you know there are you know a number of, of of criticisms you can make. We made the execution ones already, you know. Solvency versus illiquidity. We made the incent, you know, the incentive effects ones. Um, but, but in the end, I think there's just a plain old impossibility proof here. Um, the normal justification for lending to uh, a levered entity, 
an intermediary at a time of stress, uh, makes it almost a free lunch for the government. Uh, you have worried depositors who will run because they recognize that the assets the entity holds uh, cannot be li- liquidated in sufficient time to pay them back 100 cents on the dollar. Once those incentives are there... That's the insolvency. That, that's right. the Ill- illiquidity that's the Ill- claim. So in, in, in the classic example, but, you know, back to Bajet and Lombard Street and then, you know, made you know, uh, made mathematical by Diamond and Dibvig in, you know, in the early 80s. Um, and as presented by our, the chairman of the Fed, the secretary of the Treasury, here is a role for the government. We have intermediaries holding illiquid assets, providing an important economic uh, function, supporting spending and, 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 and production. Uh, their chief liabilities are short-term, and therefore they might be subject to runs because they can't liquefy those assets quickly enough. Uh, and This is the government as lender of last resort argument. Right. So and, therefore, if you step in and you just reassure everyone that you will protect them at a time of duress, then there's no reason ever to run. That presumes that you were never tempted to provide lending at last of last resort when they're insolvent, when the actual underlying assets are not right. uh, so, of value. So that's and that's the, that's the so, distinction. I, we probably haven't made it clear enough for people who aren't – maybe who are listening uh, that Badgett, who, by the way, whose book Lombard Street uh, – and Badgett is spelled B-A-G-E-H-O-T. It's tricky. But Badgett's book is online at, at econlive.org, and we'll put a link up to it. But he argued that you should it's, – it's okay for the government to lend money to illiquid organizations, but not insolvent ones. And your point really is, which is a spectacularly important one, is that uh, the political economy always going to push you to, to identify them as a liquid rather than as insolvent. There's actually a wonderful phrase that was used repeatedly in 2008, which is inter- government interventions were preventing fire sales. Right. That is, if you force the end of the, you know, the financial institution to, to li- liquidate, it would be selling uh, impaired assets into the market all at once. The prices would go well down below fundamental value, and there'd be capital losses that wouldn't be there if the assets were just held to maturity. You right. remember Chairman Bernanke was talking about held to maturity values versus fire sale values. And that's the problem with mark to market. It it, it yeah. forces these firms to right. now. In the same symposium in the Journal of Economic uh, Perspectives, uh, uh, Schleifer and Vishny have a paper in which they give a paragraph or two on the history of fire sales. Yeah. And that is the term fire sale comes from the 19th century that involved the sale of fire-damaged goods after, you know, after, uh, uh, after a fire. And... So those prices would be <laughs> significantly discounted yeah. relative to market. Yeah. Now, my response to that is, if it turns out that, that the price, market price of fire-damaged goods is very low, how do you really know that says something about market dynamics yeah. or the fact they are damaged by fire? Yeah, they're not very good. They're not worth very much. <laughs> right. And the other part of the, you know, the example of, of uh, 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 fire sales is... Actually, if you talk to an insurance agent, you find out that 
the majority of damage associated with a fire is actually from water. <laughs> it's how we do the yeah. crisis management. Yeah, good point. That's a great story. That's a great metaphor. Okay, so 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 here's here. So we 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 have this presumption that government intervention is is almost a free lunch because there's this market failure. There'd be fire sales if you had to liquidate the firm. The, the, the Federal Reserve or the Financial Stability Oversight Council can wisely step in and prevent those fire sales, therefore meaning there won't be a deposit run. But, but here's what, what they, they, they forgot that we saw over and over and over again in 2008 is these large institutions have lots of different traded assets related to their value. And the playbook of intervention is if you've decided to help a given financial firm, you will protect unsecured creditors so they don't run, and you will wipe out equity holders. So why don't you just pick the next firm the government will intervene, short the equity, and buy the unsecured debt? You meaning an investor. Yeah. That's right. So you even – it's not you, – you make the problem – even worse. So, but the point is, the fact that government stands ready to help in the resolution of the firm doesn't stop the incentive to run. It doesn't stop market dynamic speculation. It doesn't, uh, I- indeed, uh, stop the strains in financial markets. It may put them in different places. That's all. Yeah, um, I can't help but quote. Hayek, the curious task of economics is to illustrate to men how little they understand about what they imagine they can design, and this leads people to your observation. Well, that's why we need to stop short sales, and you know, there's there's no end to the attempts to tweak and fiddle and lever use the levers of the system to try to get to some outcome that you think you can get to, but you're not going to be able to get to it. Um, let me make a complaint about your narrative, okay? And then I want to give you, a, and you can defend yourself, and then I want to give you. Um, a chance to to answer a challenge to the to the um, the counterfactual story about a, a Bear Stearns a decision being made differently. So my my only complaint about your narrative is you correctly point out that in 1998 it wasn't a Fed rescue. A lot of people like to portray it that way. It it was a coordination. It was an orchestration that showed that the Fed was going to do something involving non-commercial banks, a hedge fund in that case. And so I think that did send some kind of signal. But as you point out, it's not as dramatic as as, as the Bear Stern story. But if you go back to 1995, uh, you get the Mexican crisis where the government, the U.S. government guarantees $50 billion of Mexican uh, loans under the same argument that you know otherwise markets are going to blow up and blah, blah, blah. What they really did was protect the creditors of Mexico – and again, that story has not been fully told, but we understand some of them were, were U.S. investment banks. Um, you go back to 1984, you have continental Illinois. You have the savings and loan crisis where numerous uninsured creditors were made whole, almost 100 cents on the dollar every single time, even if they were above FDIC insurance limits. So what my potential footnote to your story so far is that I think that this larger pattern of creditor rescue – uh, made it easier for Wall Street to go public, easier, more tempting for Wall Street to go public, these investment banks. 
and really helped sow the seeds for, for this long before 2008, even before 1998. What do you think of that argument? Yeah, I agree completely, uh, and I would I would say a couple things. Uh, first, I wrote a piece for our online magazine, uh, American, so it's at American.com. We'll find it. Uh, it called <laughs> When They Were Young, uh-huh. which uh, basically pointed out, if you look, this was in 2009, if you look at, at the economic officials in the Obama administration, they were actually all part of the Committee to Save the World during the Clinton administration, uh-huh. including... Uh, involved in the Mexican uh, 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 rescue or bailout yeah. and the Asian financial crisis. Yeah. And so, look, so I said, you know, look to the 1990s to see the way they think. Among other things, you see the use of the ESF in the Mexican bailout, the Exchange Stabilization Fund, as evidence that the government actually has a lot of off-balance sheet entities and at a time of crisis, they'll be happy to use, you know, an off-balance sheet entity. The Fed happens to be off-balance sheet. The, um, uh, in 98, in the Asian financial crisis, uh, what is looked back, uh, um, actually with some pride, is, is the fact that the president of the Federal Reserve uh, Bank in New York reportedly strong-armed banks to roll over Korean debt. Uh-huh. Um, well, what exactly happened in, say, the you know, uh, G, G, in the events around GM and Chrysler and bank obligations? Yeah. You know, so, so I think, yeah, the 90s give a lot of pieces of evidence uh, in terms of a thought process. Avoid Congress, use the off-balance sheet entities, crises or opportunities, use leverage on, on regulated entities. Uh, and that's where we are. And, and indeed, Dodd-Frank financial reform legislation just legitimizes all those uses of power. Well, it's 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 the triumph of discretion over rules. Oh, uh, no question about it. And um, so, so the one thing, the the point I, I I was making about Bear Stearns is it added the Fed to the club. Yeah, no doubt. In a way that prior to that, the Fed was always seen as the independent arbiter. And the Fed lost that ability. Yeah, and I agree. Uh, that's, that's a very good point. And, I, and I, I, the only other thing I would add is that those decisions in the 90s, uh, the participants crowed about them because, quote, they didn't cost the taxpayer a cent. Right. The $50 billion guarantee of Mexican credit never was invoked, so therefore sure. it was a free lunch. It's not a free lunch story. It, it ignored the incentives right. that blew up in our face um, right. a few yeah. years ago. So, so, I mean, it, so you have the incentive effects for sure. But I, but I think when you're dealing with large, complex financial institutions, it just may be impossible to resolve the way they think they can there isn't a free lunch, yeah. even in real time. No matter how hard Hank Paulson worked each weekend, there was another firm in trouble the next week. Yeah. Uh, because uh, the way I put it at the, at the time is there, there's always the next weakest antelope in the herd. Yeah, exactly. And if you have provided a blueprint of how you're going to resolve entities, protecting some portion of the balance sheet, wiping out another portion of the balance sheet, that's a blueprint to, to, to speculate against the firm. That's a great point, and it hasn't been made by anybody I've seen. It's a superb point. Uh, let, let's get to this other issue, though, about the counterfactual of what might have been different. So let me, let me phrase this as a challenge to your story and, and, implicit, and also a challenge to my version as well. 
So you argue, and I agree, that it was a mistake. They should have, in March, they should have let the uh, they should have let Bear Stearns go bankrupt. It wouldn't have been as catastrophic. We wouldn't have this expansion of Fed authority. We would have sent a signal to all the participants that all this uh, leveraged uh, financial activity they've been doing was was going to lead to trouble. We'd already had the signals that the assets themselves were not worth what people thought. One view says, well, really, there's not, it was too late. What could Lehman really have done in if, if they really – if the Fed had let Bear go down – and hung up the phone on J.P. Morgan Chase and said, "Live with it. We'll put it through the courts. That's the, that's called capitalism, which I would have liked." Um, what could Lehman and all the other holders of these at AIG and all these other folks, Fannie and Freddie, wouldn't it? Would their handwriting was already on the wall? True that for the next six months they pretended it wasn't. They they hoped for a miracle. They hoped housing prices would would rise again and they'd be bailed out effectively by maybe by the Fed's behavior. But could they really have done anything? So, so first of all, let me say, I don't think it would have been pleasant. Uh, I think there were really, look, we built too many houses as a nation. That's a whole different story about government support and, yeah. and subsidy. But yeah. we did. And when we realized how, how many houses in excess we had, there was, had to be a price adjustment. Uh, there was a real economic loss. Financial markets amplified the loss. They didn't damp it. And why didn't they damp it? Part of it was the incentives the government had provided for them to twist their balance sheet, make them way more complicated and intricate so that they weren't providing good economic uh, 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 services. Part of it was crisis management. Had the, you know, you know um, on one level, you, were right, you, you bought into the false dichotomy. <laughs> you said if the government, if the Fed, if the New York Fed... Whoever was the main actor in the week three years ago, uh, from where we, when we're talking now, had said, you know, just don't come to us. Uh, it is po- possible that Bear would have moved into bankruptcy and we would have had a rippling of, uh, you know, of, of these losses. But it's also possible there would have been intermediate uh, 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 possibilities. Remember going back to LTCM. The Fed facilitated a resolution. It also meant that Warren Buffett, who was willing to buy the portfolio of LTCM, didn't get that opportunity to add to his billions. In a fire sale, he could have made a – it was a supposedly a big profit opportunity. Right. That no he one else there. That no he one wanted. <laughs> on the phone, and the folks at LTCM uh, said no because they thought they'd do better from a Fed-facilitated resolution. So first – so three years ago, would it have – been a forced bankruptcy of, of, of Bear and all the ripple effects possible, but there could have been intermediate steps if the participants didn't have were were assured that they didn't have the backstop of the government. So that we never know. Had there been fail, yeah, would there have been failures? Yeah, and it's quite possible the Federal Reserve would have had to open up its discount window, provide huge support to markets in the form of big injections of reserves, but we ha- would have had more clearly defined lines drawn. And the, but the other part, of, and I, I don't know the answer to this, is that presumably uh, Lehman wouldn't have issued that security that you mentioned earlier. They wouldn't have been able to borrow from money market funds, and <clears throat> the damage would have been smaller. I don't know if it'd be non. I don't know if it could have been non-existent. As you point out, there was a reality there that was unavoidable, which was that people had a bunch of assets that 
weren't worth what they had hoped they would be worth. That, right. that part you can't change. Um, one other piece of the puzzle, we're almost out of time, but one other piece of the puzzle is Lehman did go bankrupt. Now, a lot of people said, yeah, and look how horrible it turned out. And, and they're pointing to the, the market signals that followed that. And you've argued, I agree, John Taylor has argued, those signals occurred because an expectation wasn't realized. It wasn't the inherent destruction of Lehman that was unhealthy. It was the change in people realizing, oh, my gosh, you mean they're not going to bail us out? But we also got a bunch of data on what happened to their counterparties, and that has gone through the courts. Again, very few people have reported on it, but the world didn't come to an end because right. Lehman Brothers' assets got tied up in the courts. Right. Did we learn anything from that? Uh, we, we, you know, what we learned is is that you know bankruptcy does work, uh, and that if we were thinking now, were were there ways of simplifying bank balance sheets to make the bankruptcy process easier and more transparent? Uh, I. We, we might be much better shaped than making the financial system more intricate as we are doing with Dodd-Frank. So had Bear Stearns gone bankrupt, actually in the end there wasn't an alternative, it went into bankruptcy, uh, we would have a severe macro dislocation. The Federal Reserve would have had to provide huge amount of resources to support markets, but it would have been support of markets, not to individual institutions. Right. And the bankruptcy would have gotten resolved. And how much sympathy should we have for unsecured creditors who had seen nine months worth of trouble with the with the the um, assets that Bear Stearns was the primary underwriter of? What other chickens are going to come home to roost? Because the other part of this, of course, is that along the way, the Fed's acquired much of the balance sheets of the government-sponsored enterprises, Fannie and Freddie. We're going to lose a lot of money on those. Um, what else is going to happen, do you think? That's so I, I think we've actually also impaired the Fed's role as a macro stabilizer. Because if you think back, the amazing thing to me of September and October of '08 was how the financial shock got transmitted into confidence. Yeah. But what was happening in September and, 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 and October of 2008, our chief financial officials, the people we look to for guidance on the macro economy, was telling Congress we were on the edge of a precipice, that they had to pass the Troubled Asset Relief Program. They had to give even more resources to double down uh, to support what could be many failing institutions. And what happened? Every single measure of confidence, every single forward-looking, uh, you know, measure of sales intentions or purchase intentions, whatever you want, it just fell off a cliff. Uh, that uh, when we give this role for financial stability to our, you know, our uh, explicitly, um, it means it's you know the. The, you know, we, we, we really do impair the information content on their description of the economy. Uh, in normal times, uh, they're always going to say the financial system is sound. And therefore, we're going to believe them less in their characterization of the economy. So in ben hard times, they're going to tell, you know, tell us how important it is, you know, and how, how, how many unusual steps we have to make about financial, for 
to support financial stability, and we're going to get more worried about the economy. So if Ben Bernanke, Tim Geithner, and Hank Paulson were sitting opposite you in this panel, um, what would they say in, in disputing you, and why should I, why should I believe you? Um, so I think they would say that they sincerely believe they were the, on the edge of the a precipice, that the financial system is extremely nonlinear, uh, that, that, um, that there were adverse effects of, of, on confidence, on confidence is just a, a, a drawback of representative democracy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and? And what would I say? Yeah. Uh, what I would say is you shouldn't have been in that position to begin with, that, that indeed um, they made deci- decisions upstream that had these huge consequences in the floodplain, and the floodplain turned out to be September, October. My guest today has been Vincent Reinhardt. Vincent, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thanks for having me. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.